0: You're listening to the Editorial Intelligence special broadcast from the Names Not Numbers Symposium. More information on namesnotnumbers.com
1: Good morning ladies and gentlemen hacks and hackettes. We all do it here I think with the possible exception of Sylvia Earle and Will Bicycle. He doesn't do it. He puts bicycles together. We're all sort of media types and what are media about now? What are media values? Because this is a very, very value oriented session. When Sky when Rupert Murdoch, News Corporation I I really did hear a hiss there. (laughs) Um, uh, It's just like Panto, isn't it? When Rupert Murdoch owns all of Sky and when Baz, lovely Peter Bazalgette appears on the Today programme and explains exactly how the new sort of CGI-ish version of product placement works. You don't have to give somebody a packet of cornflakes to put on the table, in the set. You paint it in afterwards. Isn't that amazing? So you can paint in whatever you like, whenever you like, for whatever market you like. What are media values in such a wonderful world? Now, what we're not going to talk about, by the way, because I I thought I heard this coming yesterday, is how do people interview politicians, or, you know, Paxman, Humphreys, any of that. I'm afraid we're not going to deal with that. We're not going to deal with old media and politics. It's the very big, very new picture. The digital impact, the new world, the fault lines, the stuff of airport books. And because it's the stuff of airport books, we had a power ballad. For you, I asked for the wind beneath my wings, <laughs> but it was, it was nearly there. Oh, yes. So what are values when you're talking about media? Well, they're money, because media values are valuations and money. <laughs> Their utility. can it be useful to you? Can it play a role in your life in viewers and listeners and, and um, onliners' lives? And then it's beliefs. You know, people talk about our values. And then it's that stuff that people plaster onto a company after the event and say, you know, like Odeon saying, we're fanatical about film. Do you remember Odeon, the dullest cinema group in the universe, suddenly saying, we are fanatical about film? Well, lots of very dull cultures talk about their values. And you interrogate them about them and they don't know what they're talking about. Now, I want to tell you a little story, just a very little story. Um, In the middle of the last decade, I had an idea bursting its way out of my head in a very incoherent way, which was basically an idea about how the rich had taken over the middle of London. And what was that about? And how were they rich? And what rich people were they? And so on. And I went to a, a, a charming senior channel owner, broadcaster, I know, and said you know, this is utterly incoherent, but it's very important. I know it's bursting out of my head. And he humored me. And he put me on to a senior commissioning editor who was a very, very serious and responsible person. And I told him about this thing which was bursting its way out of my head. And he said, do you think we could do it as a competition? That's 2005 for you. Now, to talk about value, media values, values from their perspective, we have an incredibly gorgeous and pouting set of contestants. Sorry, panellists. We have a gorgeous, pouting set of of panellists who all bring a very particular perspective to bear on the new world, a bit old world a bit new world, a bit every world, and they're going to talk about what they like, but with the emphasis on how things are now and going forward, and how that relates to what they do, and first up, amazingly, because he's called A, is Debra- Abraham, who is CEO CEO of Channel 4, and it says here, sixth. That it was like being the sixth president or something. It's very, very important they're being the sixth chief executive of Channel 4. But before that, he's made the transmutation from a, being an ad man of a very superior New Labourish kind. He, he ran an ad agency which was famous, not only for its campaigns, but for its culture. New Labour used to point, ooh, St Luke's, it's got a lovely culture. And then he moved into telly and moved more and more into telly from... Discovery to what we now call Dave, I think it's fair to say, isn't that? And then then May 2010, point of wonderfulness, (coughs) King of Channel 4,
2: David. Well, good morning. Um, It's been a pretty unique experience being here, and I thought I'd frame what I wanted to say by sort of three things that really stuck in my mind. One was Will um, from the bicycle company, Something Nassim said and something um, that Harvey was talking about last night. Will was talking about how he felt his organization should uh, uh, help to change the way that businesses relate between their employees and their customers and that things should sort of get back to that sort of intimacy. And it reminded me of my experience with St. Luke's, which was a, a creative company that was sort of basically like a kibbutz. It was really owned by all of us, run by all of us, and it was fantastically successful for five years and then exploded in a very noble uh, and, uh, and kind of wonderful way, and is now a, a very much a shadow of its former self. So I have, a, I have sort of took that experience of trying to run a creative organization with, with the people's values and the people's connections with it, really driving it. And I saw the best of what creative people can do to drive business success. But to be honest, I also lo- learned an awful lot about the limitations once you get to scale, and uh, what happens when you get this creative destruction of needing to uh, expand and, uh, and deploy capital in ways which can, be, uh, which can create much debate, which is what happens at St. Luke's, effectively, we couldn't agree on whether the capital was there to create job security or whether it was there to expand and acquire uh, other companies. Nassim talked about randomness, and I was quite struck by that thing he put at the end, about where he showed the sort of fragility of top-down structures and the, and the, the, the kind of... Um, the, the, the creativity that comes from the artisan uh, world. And, and, uh, and in actual fact, what, when I come to talk about Channel 4, it's very much the product of artisans. It's the product of individual producers that is the net sum total of the strength of Channel 4 and what gives it its creative vitality. Because we don't have in-house production and we don't own our own rights. We, are, we have been created in order um, to ferment this, uh, this rather random uh, creative world. And then finally, when... Um, when Harvey was talking about uh, his lifetime and Steven Sacker was pushing him quite hard and sort of saying, yeah, but you're like a, a rock dinosaur. What would you know about the future of music? And I was thinking about the way in which um, the older generations, whether it's Rupert Murdoch or now Chris Patton or my chairman, uh, Terry Burns, people in the 60s, 70s and even 80s, are helping to uh, deal with this world of convergence. And the world of convergence obviously is represented by the very young generation people coming out of Silicon Valley who really don't care about the values of content and creativity because they are driven by a world of search. In fact, they quite consciously say we don't care about content and how it's derived and where it comes from. So there's big debate about the relationship between those two things. We are now at the very centre of dealing with the implications of convergence. So really, my time at Channel 4, the next three to five years, will be about what is convergence and how do we use creativity and what will be the role of creativity in delivering... A new experience in which the the power of broadband and the immutable power of linear television come together in new and interesting ways, both both creatively and in terms of uh, and in terms of business models. But clearly, Channel Four exists also because it has this unique combination of sort of mission and mischief, and that's why it matters, and that's sort of why people care about it in a world of increasing. conglomeration and homogenization of media ownership, the fact that all of the voices of Channel 4, whether it's the voices that, that come into our movies at Film 4 or the voices on dispatches or the voices on the news, all of these things matter and I think will become more distinctive as time goes on. Um, so I'm, I'm really in, sort of setting on a course now um, to see what I can do to retain the essence of that original vision that Channel 4 in fact, Stephen, who, who you'll hear from in a minute, uh, some months ago, gave me a book uh, that he wrote as a thesis um, back in the 80s about why Channel 4 exists. And I think the reason why Channel 4 exists is even more important now, and will be more important now, uh, with all of these changes than, than ever before. And hopefully, I can do something to protect that. And finally, you know, the, the wonderful thing about the institution of Channel 4, it is it is part of the public space, but it receives no government subsidy It operates in the hungry, tumultuous world of commercial television, where it has to make its way every single day. And that discipline uh, and that hunger, I think, is very, very good for us. Uh, And it's why, obviously, under my watch, uh, we will neither be going to the government for public subsidy, nor will we be, hopefully, be being privatized, because the uniqueness of Channel 4, in my view, could not be retained if we were a for-profit organization. So I think that was about three minutes. (laughs) Brilliant. <coughs> all that from the successor, the sixth successor to
1: somebody who was described as the National Pornographer Royal or something like that. Isn't that true of one of your predecessors? Yeah. Pornographer in chief. Pornographer in chief to the nation. There you are. You see? It's all changed. No. Janet Goldsmith... <laughs> Why do you
3: look at me? <laughs> it's you next. It's you next. <laughs> okay.
1: and Janet Goldsmith is chairman of Names Not Numbers New York, because we're going to do it in New York. And she is our chairman and ambassador there, and she's a media lady, and as you might just tell as she talks, because she's been here for 25 years and then went back to America. She is originally an American, and media through and through, big media, big corporate media, and then advisory because she co-founded the wonderful media analysis group, Teak, with Matthew Horsman. Janet.
3: Um, as Peter said, I recently moved back to New York about a year ago after um, almost 30 years here working in the media, and I'm coming to you with an apocryphal tale, really, um, from a land where media values have been trumped by media valuations. Um, and it really came as a, um, quite a shock to me, despite the fact that I had visited, you know, when I went back and forth to the U.S. regularly and worked for a U.S. media, indeed for a movie studio for five years, it came as quite a shock to me really how financially driven the media is in the U.S. to the point where everything is about serving the quarterly earnings and really very, very little um, is about serving the public. And it's particularly obvious in the in the area of news and it's something that I've become over the last year actually really quite obsessed by and and feel quite strongly about, um, is shameful. There's there's really no media values in the news in the U.S. anymore. And it wasn't always like this. I know we all, you know, look and laugh and think news was always local there and it was always ridiculous. News actually used to be the flagship of the media organizations. It was always a loss maker, but it was really where they got all their stripes. It was where I, I remember being here 25 years ago and working on a five-hour documentary for ABC News about the nuclear future, so it did happen It was there and now after 30 years. I find the news unwatchable Um, There's absolutely nothing on television. I can watch it's a lot of people shouting at each other Even the noble examples that are cited the things like CNN saying they're doing so much better You can watch an hour of CNN which I did with a friend um, who was over from London Recently, and it was the day that bill clinton i don 't know if i 'm sure it made the news over here appeared in the White House press room with barack obama and CNN spent an hour analyzing what it meant that Bill Clinton had been there with Barack Obama and what it meant that Obama left to go to a Christmas party um, with his wife and At no point during that hour did they mention what Bill Clinton had to say and why he was there there 's no looking at the at the issues there 's no so effectively what they 're doing is Um, not serving, in my view, in the citizen, in any way. And, of course, they're all privately owned, and that's fine. We do have some publicly funded media in the US, but um, they're constantly under threat. They're financed almost entirely by donations, really, and a very little bit of public money. Um, And I think it's it's actually um, really serving our democracy ill. The thing is, we did allow it to happen. It really, really wasn't always like this. I come back here really with a kind of tale of warning to you because, you know, it's great. We have publicly funded media in the UK and in Europe. We're all used to it. We all take it for granted. We abuse the BBC, and I'm, you know, I'm, I am a critic in certain ways. They have imperial ambitions. They have jacuzzi of cash. They're not accountable enough. But ultimately, there is an institution and an organization that is there to serve the public interest and to inform um, citizens, viewers, listeners. And really, you know, if, you don't, if you're not careful, if you don't keep watch, all the stories about the King's speech since I've been back, my God, it's just kind of taken over. You know, the Big Brother is off the air now, and so we won't have endless, endless Big Brother stories. But the kind of rise of celebrity journalism, and it permeates actually now even the, even the public broadcasting companies here. If those values are allowed to trump over... Um, really the kind of, you know, purposes, the core purposes of the public broadcasting organisations, it will be to the peril of the democracy here. And it's really up to the citizens I think to make sure that doesn't happen. Thank you. (laughs) Well, uh,
1: consider yourself warned, and it'd be very interesting at another time to go over uh, the detailed ways, the little bits of slippage that accounted for that, because I think we all remember a time when American networks lost lead with the news, lost lead with their documentaries. Sort of got the Walter Cronkite values over things, which brightened up the rest of the the offer. Rachel Johnson is um, is a Johnson, and you know there there are ups and downs to being a Johnson. Um, uh, you have no uh, idea, uh, Peter. Yes, but oh I'm I'm trying to I'm trying to channel it, you see, and um, she is currently editor of the Lady, which currently. I know will have been. Um, well, I mean, people like to
4: all have right, a CV, on. don't
1: they? They like a CV, and um, I'm sure sure constant reading for all of you, constant <laughs> reading for the nanny owning classes, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And I, there's a lot of nanny owning in in the best parts of north london and um, before she did this she did all sorts of stuff and i was quite astonished to see what sorts of stuff you had done and been the first female graduate trainee at the ft which is quite a serious grown up sort of thing to do quite a, um, <laughs> <laughs> and all that. that
4: that was when i peaked i peaked early yes. Yes.
1: <laughs> yes And the lady is a fascinating phenomenon. her task is to contemporize it, isn't it or um, contemporize it or what's the other word um, Keep
4: it trading
1: Keep it trading that's the, that's the word um, uh, Rachel, tell us your take on modern media.
4: Well, luckily it does follow on from Janet because I think what I'm going to say is, is very instructive because we've seen in. Well, I've got to talk about myself a bit because I wasn't quite sure what media values were, but Johnson's are very good at talking about themselves. And um, it is actually quite an instructive story when you look at media values and media valuations and um, you look at media brands in terms of what they're supposed to do, i.e. Channel 4, and what they do do and what, how they suffer if they diverge from what their core competency or their core mission is supposed to be. So with that in mind, I want to tell you a bit about The Lady, which is a wonderful little paradigm of how the media is performing at the moment and the difficulties that, I mean, something like The Lady faces in the media environment. It is the oldest women's weekly in the world. It's been in continuous publication since 1885. And in 2009 the 73-year-old former editor who'd been there for 25 years or whatever it was, um, was seen as past her sell-by and they thought, we, want, they, we don't want the magazine to die, but we recognize that, um, like Philip Morris, our old smokers are dying and we desperately need new smokers, you know, this sort of thing. So the, editor, the publisher of the magazine cast around for a new editor and he, for some reason, lit on me and when he offered me the job, I didn't know the magazine was still trading, was still in publication. I hadn't seen it for 15 years. Having said that, I'd lost all my print gigs over the course of the previous nine months. I had 12 of them, and one after the other, they disappeared. And I was left with nothing and three children in private school. And as we know, this is about a trillion pounds a term. And um, so I've always wanted a title. So I said yes immediately, but then it turned I had to... Compete for the job. I was thrilled when I was offered the job, and then I realised the challenge I had to face, which was. Titan- titans of the newsstand, like Newsweek and Reader's Digest, were folding. This was a single-title publishing house which was completely invested in this magazine. They have their families' emotional investment was in this magazine. At the same time, readers—the tide of readers—for a print offering that you pay for on the newsstand was disappearing so fast because our competition is given away free in the the shape of supplements that come with your newspapers. At the same time, the Internet had taken our core business, which was our small ads. Therefore, we have no USP. The USP, I sensed, the publishers were now finding was in a new figurehead who could rebrand and revamp the magazine, which immediately takes us into a collision territory. So I'd, I need to tell you a bit about what <coughs> happened. Uh, I, I said to Steve and Lambert, the only way we're going to make anyone aware that the lady still exists is if we do a television program. Um, luckily, the Sunday Times did a big... Um, meet, uh, magazine piece and therefore everybody started writing about the lady Stephen Lambert actually said don't do the documentary (laughs) David Abraham's Channel 4 (laughs) did commission the documentary and therefore everybody sort of thought the lady's kind of back it's all everyone's talking about it Um, I have there was a lot of attention directed at me rather than the brand and this is what the problem is because to summarize where we were when I arrived at the Lady, I think it had a valuation of several hundred thousand pounds. This year, he, the publisher has had offers to buy the magazine for five million pounds. You might think that I have added a huge value to the Lady magazine. However, what this—you can—if your investment is so much in one person, you are in a classic fragile, top-down situation in which your business is absolutely vulnerable. And I will give you an example. Um, what's the, what's the, when something goes wrong? A lawnmower, too. Harvey? Harvey? <laughs> we have a classic lawnmower, too, situation can develop whereby your perceived market can, can turn against you very quickly if you... Or John Galliano in the case of Dior, or trying to think, um, Tiger Woods in the case of Accenture, perceives to make a blunder that can then undermine the whole brand. And so the Lady Magazine, 1885, founded to provide entertainment without vulgarity, information without <laughs> dullness, appoints an editor like me. In a sense, it's high risk, high reward, but when the risks, when the when the shit hits the fan, which it will do if you have somebody who is representing your brand, who is a human being, then the media is pitiless in then devaluing your brand just as fast as it built it up. And therefore you have a crazy situation where you are destroyed by a Daily Mail headline and your readers can turn against you. Your market will desert you and the media will despise you just as quickly So what I'm saying is Facebook, Twitter, their valuations are based on the agglomeration of millions of perceptions and users. They are, in a sense, much more robust than a magazine which is based on the approbation of, let's say, one person to carry it forward. So um, be very, very careful when messing with your core values. Never assume... That the media will always be on your side, and if you diverge from your core values, you will be punished eventually. I think that's the lesson, the instructive lesson for me, if not for you, anyway. (laughs) (laughs) So,
1: do you ride a bike?
4: Do I ride a bike? Mm. Occasionally. Why? In,
1: in, In central London. Yes. There you um, are. Okay. Just just thinking. Anyway, I think in Radio Four terms, what you've <laughs> what you described is called refreshment, isn't it? Re, re, audience refreshment. In case some members of the audience were to get very very old and die, you would have have to find some new ones. And
5: okay. the assumption
1: might be that replenisher. People, replenisher. <laughs> That's that what be, people might not naturally graduate to the brand. It's always a dicey situation. Well, buy now. I mean, you know, sell now, buy now, I say. Um, um, Caroline Michelle. um, I asked her whether she wanted to be described as a literary agent because it seemed like a sort of period term, didn't it? And I thought there might be another word that people use for it. A fancy, you know, three-word term but apparently there isn't, and she's perfectly happy to be described as a literary agent and a very, very distinguished one at that. She's been the CEO of PFD, Peters Fraser Dunlop, since 2007. Before that, she represented William Morris on Earth, fair, um, or at least in in, in London, and she's done 25 years hard of agenting and before that of... Editing in the old world. Caroline.
6: When Peter first said, are you happy to be described as a literary agent, I didn't quite know what he was talking about. Because (coughs) when you move from publishing to agenting, you definitely (coughs) fall below the salt. So I thought there was a kind of insult coming there. Um, We're living in an age where there's never been more stories in circulation Um, They're global, they're national, they're local, they're personal. And if the world of stories was an economy, it would be the world's biggest. And we have to know how we value that. My business is based on the genius of others, and it's based on huge valuations every day. It's the developing of ideas, of biographies, of histories, of fiction. And it's my job to realize their value and to bring them to the marketplace. And what we value and what we feel matters is one of the most important tenets in the business that I work in. And increasingly, the writers who we look after, it's always been a big theme for writers and for thinkers, for everybody. What really matters? What do we care about? What would we risk? What do we really feel is at the heart of our worlds? And it's a funny sort of way, it's never been more, more reoccurring than it is at the moment. Susan Greenfield is writing about and urging us not to forget the importance and value of our imagination that we don't turn everything we ever hear about into some kind of pot-noodle knowledge, that we think rather than Google, that we don't let our brains rot in this video world generation where our worlds and our minds are only activated by reward, quick reward, and where the second level of assassin, too, is the most important thing we can think about. Stephen Bailey talks about how we can only surely value what we have. You can value stuff if you have a curiosity about how it's made and not just throw it away when it's broken. Jeanette Winterson explores the possibility of love and the value of relationships in just about everything she writes, that we don't just throw relationships away, but we try and understand their value. Julia Hobsbawm has written an absolutely fantastic proposal, This We Know, how we come to understand the value of knowledge, of which there can be nothing more important, and how we find our way to it. Linda Grattan on the importance of the workplace and the value we have to put on work and what it means to our lives. And, of course, our very own Simon Sharma, who's been writing about the valuation of history, of art and of language and how important that is to us for through just about everything he's ever done. But perhaps no one knows better than our client Julian Assange about the value of media when he changed the game and created the first stateless <coughs> publishing company. But Julian's impact would not have been so Immediate and so far-reaching. If he hadn't had hours and hours and hours of man of man-hours from a group of people who are experts in their fields, editors, broadcasters, people in TV um, channels, in newspapers, who are using their incredible ability to sift through all that imagina- through all that information and distill it to make sense of that information for the rest of us. These groups and individuals, I think, are going to be increasingly important in everything we do. They're the professional mediators of information and knowledge. One of the themes of the last two days has been about this incredible information overload. How do we make sense of it? How do we value the knowledge we're given? It's incredibly important that that information is distilled for us because no one can cope with it all. So we have these mediators. Now, you know rather pertinently at the moment, Rupert Murdoch looks as if he's going to be the ultimate mediator of all. He is the ruler at the moment of just about everything we survey. Do we trust him? I don't know. I think that's for us to decide. But I think that is the central issue going forward in everything we do. In my small way, you know, I look at what comes into me in terms of ideas and concepts. Everywhere we have people who are beginning to sift that information for us. And I think the most important thing going forward that we can do is have that group of individuals or that institution that we trust. Why are they there? Should they be there? Are they good enough to be there? Bernard Shaw once agreed, um, once argued that the world was determined by unreasonable men because they looked at it and saw themselves at not having to change to fit in with their environment, but that their environment should change to fit with them. It's a rather terrifying thought. Twitter now brings down governments. The Daily Telegraph and Rachel Johnson have saved our forests. The media is the greatest tool of change because it's accessible to us all and accessed by everyone. But it is a double-edged sword. You know, it's one that we need to know how to be able to manage, how to contain and how to understand it. And I think certainly if there's a message going forward for me, it's that we have groups of people that we do trust to sift through that information and to find our way forward into a future which has a system of values that we believe in.
1: So at the end of it all, algorithms can't do everything. We have to rely on people. Linda Grattan I think, is a business writer, isn't she? She's
6: Professor of Business Management. Yes. Right? She wrote a most
1: book. wonderful book, which I reviewed once, called Glow. Mm. And Glow was about getting people glowing in the work environment. And I was so excited by it, it spun- suggested spontaneous combustion. Was a really weird book, I can tell you. <laughs> uh, but fascinating. Those things re- sell in um, airports, don't they? Mm-hmm. They sell they in do. airports. Um, now, I, I, it's just because I wish I'd r- written something like that. Stephen Lambert is a, a televisionist. There's no getting around that. And he's one of a sort of a newer breed of televisionist because he's an independent production company owner. Studio Lambert, um, uh, and
7: and it's yeah,
1: well it's just it, it sounds nice, doesn't it? Um, uh, and it goes with stu- it goes with Studio, it goes with Studio, and it's an international big production company that makes great fancy international formats, and is part of a yet larger group, British owned. A huge agglomeration of very, very famous production companies. That's what it's getting to be like now. It used to be. When Channel 4 started, you'd think, who is an independent producer? It's a bloke or a bloke in their front room in Crouch End. No longer. They're about huge international companies, and we, little English people, provide... I think this is right, 52% of the world's great (coughs) formats. And you've done your bit towards that, haven't you?
2: Uh,
7: Yes. Stephen. Okay, thank you. Um, Oh, that's very loud. Um, (laughs) John Reith said that the BBC's mission was to educate, inform, and entertain. Um, I think he probably agreed to the last one rather reluctantly. Um, He was quite a dour man. And um, (laughs) As as, as late as the 1960s, the BBC's light entertainment output was referred to as ground bait. Um, Get the fish eating, and then we can give them something that's good for them. Um, There's been an extraordinary revolution in the last decade. Um, I mean, just two examples. Facebook, just over seven years old. As of this this month, it has 600 million active users. Um, No wonder those twins want more. Um, YouTube, one year younger, every minute, every minute of the day, 24 hours of material is loaded up onto uh, YouTube. Um, a lot of that's clips, but some of it's original, quite a lot of it's also original creations. Charlie bit my finger, I don't know if any of you have seen it. A video of one, um, one-year-old English boy biting his three-year-old brother's finger has been seen 287,354,814 hits as of last night. This revolution has shifted massive amounts of power um, from the providers to the users of information. Reith would have hated it. You don't want to watch a program when it's on. It's always on somewhere. You you like one song but not the album, iTunes or Spotify will, will oblige. You don't want to buy a newspaper, we'll read it for free. Newspapers will also kindly oblige despite hemorrhaging a great deal of money. It's a new frontier for content industries which grew up with a far less direct notion of supply and demand. Newspapers and television networks bundled or aggregated the profitable sections on cars or the lifestyle programs on property with the Pulitzer Prize winning investigations or the costly RTS winning International Current Affairs series cross-collateralization, as the accountants would call it. But now each piece of content, text and video, can be judged on its own, separate from the rest of the newspaper or the network schedule. Viewers can make their own choices, and mostly that means they want to be entertained. The whole tin of ground bait has been dropped into the water. In this published first, ask questions later blog world, inaccuracy is intrinsic to the product, and many blogs rely on the crowd of commentators to call it into account. Today, there seems to be a bigger premium on popularity, sustained or not, than there is on authority. That's Rob Norman, boss of the world's largest advertising media company, (coughs) Group M. And for many people, it's their friends on social media who are increasingly telling them what's popular and what's good, rather than the search engines. The effect of all this on newspapers is well known. We wait to see what the Times and Sunday Times paywall will achieve. It's probably too soon to tell. But meanwhile, those papers that don't charge are seeing a catastrophic collapse in their income. It's bad here. It's even worse in America, where so many papers have gone to the wall. Journalism is fracturing into a myriad of forms, and the big newspaper and magazine companies no longer have the domination they once did. Commercial brands know they can bypass them and reach their audience directly through self-generated content that the smarter businesses disseminate by social. Clunky content, clunky advertorial content, laden with overt brand values and PR messages don't hold the attention of the media-aware web users, so experienced print journalists are hired to create online content that will build an audience of potential customers. It's part of a wider pattern that's quickly graying the boundaries between journalism and marketing. But if that's what's happening to newspapers, what's happening to television? have television audiences been declining too? Well, actually, no, quite the opposite. Despite the proliferation of computers, video-capable mobile phones, and similar devices, the television in the home still commands the greatest amount of viewing time, even among those aged 18 to 24, in both Britain and America. Last year, British viewers watched an average of four hours and 18 minutes a day an increase of close to 8% year on year. America watched 4 hours and 35 minutes every single day. Call that four and a half hours for both countries. That's 32 hours every week. Think about that. Adults are spending almost as much time in front of a television as they are working a full-time job. Children are being educated by their TV sets more than they are being educated by their teachers. 89% of people watch most of their television in their living room and only 3% um, of households don't have a television. 72% of people ate at least one meal in front of the television every single day. The average number of TV sets in each home has risen in the past 10 years from 1.9 to 2.4, and people want big ones. Two million 40 inch or bigger (coughs) flat screen televisions were bought in Britain last year. Television is supreme at holding the attention of a large number of people for long periods. Other gadgets divert people from the box, but not nearly as much as TV diverts them from all those other gadgets. And while technology has undermined some of television's biggest competitors, notably newspapers, in a world of fragmenting audiences, television is the only real global mass medium. Last month, 106 million Americans watched the Super Bowl, 6 million more than the year before. When our series Undercover Boss, a documentary format that follows the heads of big businesses doing frontline jobs in their own company, was launched last year on CBS just after the Super Bowl, it had an audience of more than 38 million viewers. No other medium can deliver these kind of numbers instantly to something new. So if television remained so dominant, what would John Reith think of its values? He probably wouldn't be happy, but I think that the idea of public service still remains strong, surprisingly strong, in British television. Everyone apart from the 3% of households who don't have a television are legally required to pay the television license, which guarantees the BBC 3.5 billion pounds a year. Whether they spend that money in the best possible way is an open question, but there's no doubt that the idea of public service is still at the heart of much of what it does. And of course, Channel 4 provides an alternative and often noisy public service offering, despite having to raise all its far smaller revenues from advertising. And I think that the quality of many American drama series shows that in a rich nation with lots of television networks, good work will find an audience in advertisers. I marvel at the fact that West Wing, which for me is one of the best examples of public service television, was for seven years a hit on NBC. It was a product of the most intensely competitive television market on the planet, and yet it told American citizens an enormous amount about their political, how their political system worked. So I think that Television is launching new ideas all the time, and it's really up to us as, as viewers to, to, to tell um, those people running television what you want. Uh, I think people who are commissioning television programs are fantastically responsive to what the viewer wants, and it's up to us to decide what that is.
1: I think... Stephen highlighted that very, very important thing. Can you be responsive, understanding your audiences, which doesn't always mean doing lots of market research, but it's terribly important, market research, um, and responsible. Um, Stephen gave us, incidentally, and I love them both, faking it and wife swap. And I think that's both responsive and responsible. Now... Um, Gabby Derbyshire, um, I said, look, isn't Gawker Media, wonderful Gawker Media, of which she is CEO, isn't it the sort of Perez Hilton of the thinking classes? And she jumped on me very angrily and said, no. That would be completely to malign, to do down the 20 other strands or channels which are all about world economic development, for all I know. I, don't, I mean, I don't know what they're all about. But it's, it's Gawker I go to, and it's been responsible for, I don't know, killing off at least three congressmen, hasn't it? And, and wonderful, socially active things like that. It's very, very clever, and it's very, very cool, and it's in New York. But Gabby, as you will swiftly tell, is only only English, as Quentin Crispy to say. I'm only English. and. <laughs> So, originally a barrister, doing good works barristering here, moving on uh, in 99 uh, to San Francisco and getting into media and modern things. And now, Gorka for you. Gabby.
5: Thanks, Peter. Um, I didn't write a speech because I wasn't really quite sure what was meant by media values in this context and so I thought I'd listen to everybody else and sort of respond to a few things they said and of course I've scribbled so much down I don't <laughs> really know where to start. Um, but I think touching on a, a few issues about community because that's the theme of the weekend um, and then something that Rachel said and then something that Stephen said. Um, I happen to agree with Stephen that television creates some of the most brilliant writing in the world today um, and some of the most brilliant <coughs> entertainment and I think it's extraordinary to see what's been happening in television in the last couple of decades. I think some of the dramas on TV in both America and England are the, uh, uh, far superior to the Hollywood film industry and quite extraordinary. And I also think that there's this sense of paternalism about what we should be watching. is, is rubbish. I mean, The, the readers um, or the audience do tell you. The numbers don't lie. They tell you what they want to watch. And good commissioners and good networks will produce that for them. Um, There is a real issue in my business about the cost of producing quality. Um, I'm sorry if I'm echoing. Uh, There is definitely an issue as we get to the point of convergence about how does one create content of quality for a web medium. And the reason is, is because the web, um, from a valuation perspective, advertising on the web is very, very um, valued at a very low level compared to advertising on television. So you can sustain the production values of very high quality on TV, but you can't do that in the video format online and make it profitable. It simply doesn't, um, doesn't compute. And one of the things that Stephen referred to is uh, this video, Charlie uh, bit my finger on YouTube. One of the things about the modern generation, the YouTube manager, generation is two, two things. One, they have ADD, so they don't have the patience to sit more through something that's more than a minute or two long. And two, um, they don't have this expectation of quality that is at a very high level. Good enough is really the mantra. And so uh, there is no point making video, uh, short form video for the web of very high production quality because it simply isn't needed, wanted, or sustainable. So in a world in which you try and figure out how to make convergence work for you, um, you have to solve a whole bunch of these problems. And uh, the information overload that Caroline referred to, I think, is kind of key to what we do. If you think about how the web developed, first of all, there was simply an ability to um, share information, and it started in a sort of academic context of academics wanting to share Information. Then there was suddenly a lot of information, so you had to find a way to hierarchically organise it. Which, by the way, is the meaning of the word Yahoo. Yahoo actually means yet another hierarchical organisational um, order. Order. Something like that. It's simply a matter a way of structuring the web, and then you get. You know, further down the line and there's so much stuff and then you need a search engine because you need to be able to find out what is out there. And then there's even more stuff and you don't know how to cope with it. So what you then really need is an editor. You need someone to tell you, I've read everything. And in my opinion, these things are the things that are worth reading and the things that are important for you to know. And I have done the job for you of going through everything that's out there and saying, here is my selection. That is the job of an editor. And so... When we started our company, it was very much sort of in the context of having a, a very strong editorial voice about what we thought was worth um, looking at and following in the different subjects that we cover, whether it's technology or cars or media or politics, whatever it might be. And um, I think that Rachel made a very important point about making sure that you don't have all of your eggs in one basket. If your brand depends on one individual, you're gonna get into trouble pretty quickly. And when we started Gawker and Gizmodo and all these other titles, they very much were a personal voice of an individual editor. And so the world said, oh, if that editor leaves, it's game over. And so we were very worried at the beginning that because our editors were such strong voices, that when they left, our business would be done. And what happened, of course, is that as you grow bigger, you can be big and you can be cool. It's often hard to be both, and you're trying to manage this way of, of actually managing growth and remaining cool for your audience and you know, loyal to your original um, mission. And what happened for us was the realization that you can actually Um, transcend the individual voice because the brand becomes big enough and in itself it stands for something. So our brands stand for something that people who come to our sites to read them know what they're going to get and it's no longer the individual voice of the first founding editor. So that was a big transition for us and quite scary. Um, I think on the subject of community, I think we have one of the most powerful and strongest communities on the web. Um, The commenters on our sites are incredibly intelligent and extremely passionate. And um, they will get into a conversation about a topic that we write about. And the comments and the conversation that is sparked by what we say will carry on not only for days, but could be thousands of comments strong. And I think the important thing about the web and its Facebook or anything else is this sense of community that is engendered, if you get it right. Now, our... um, our commenters actually sometimes feel like they own the house, right? We just did a big redesign a couple of weeks ago. It was all designed to take um, note of the future of convergence of video and, and online materials being much more visually based. Um, and we knew that people don't like change, and we knew that this was us setting ourselves up for the future, not for right now. Oh, boy, everybody hated it oh, my God, we have done nothing for the last two weeks but battle in the trenches a whole slew of negative press saying that we made a mistake, that Nick's an idiot, that we have to roll it back, that we have to admit defeat. Everybody hates it. We have had thousands of complaints from our readers who essentially have said, you have come into our house in the middle of the night, repainted it, and we don't like the color. And when you turn around to your readers and say, but you don't own the house, they go, yes, we do. And unfortunately... What that realization brings to you is this sense of the fact that you are so not disconnected from your audience. And the thing about our business is that we know exactly what they feel at any given moment because they tell us. Whereas a newspaper who doesn't allow people to comment or a TV show that is you know, one-to-many broadcast without it being a conversation, they don't necessarily have that feedback mechanism. And so our aggressive tinkering, to use uh, Nassim Taleb's uh, um, metaphor you know has proven to us more strongly than I could possibly imagine how very important that one-to-one conversational bond with our, our community is even though we don't see them face to face we know who they are they know who we are and they absolutely inform our decision on what to give them and what to publish and what to um, return uh, back to them in, in the future because our entire agenda is set by our reader response
1: And you know who they are?
5: We do actually. It's actually usually pretty extraordinary because um, we've got a whole um, we have a whole series of reader meetups that happen around not only America but now around the world organized by the readers themselves, nothing to do with us, not, you know, seeded or instigated by us. And all the commenters and the people who are Jezebel fans, for example, the modern version of the lady is, you know, Jezebel online, which is our women's title, which is pretty feminist, <laughs> but they all call themselves the Jezzies And they have reader meetups because they want to know who these people they're talking to online are, because they are intelligent and fascinating. And great friendships have been formed as a result of the fact that they had some argument about a story on Jezebel. No. What do you call Gawker people? Well, yeah, we don't, actually. Mm. It's just the, je- the, the, the Jezebels. The Jezees really identify themselves as being a reader and a comment on the site and part of that conversation. Mm.
1: Well, it's amazing the difference between the clever, marvellous people you get online sometimes and the LOLOMG crowd who, under the cover of anonymity say the most ghastly and totally illiterate things all the time. There's a lovely American expression running off at the mouth. And that is what people do in a quite amazing way. So you get the best, you obviously get the best, and the worst. So what does this mean for us all? We've had some very valuable insights and we've had some very awful warnings. Warnings about what it might be like here. Warnings about not to build figurehead brands unless we have have very, very heavy key man insurance. (laughs) Things like that. Can responsive be responsible? Can you maintain values? Can you be big and cool? And how do you keep the public service broadcasting spirit alive, not only with new technology... But when the organisations that are supposed to keep it alive are actually being run by a cohort, a second cohort of Thatcher's children. We're not even the first cohort of Thatcher's children. How is that done? David was describing people who come in from a world where really content doesn't matter, it's searchability. How does that all work? Questions from you, please, for our brilliant contestant.
0: Oli Grender, good morning Um, and uh, congrats to all of you for fantastic fantastic, really interesting stuff especially at this early hour Um, I was just incredibly surprised actually that Twitter didn't come up in anything um, um, because I now feel very much part of um, a community particularly when I'm watching TV programs uh, because I'm one of those sad nerds who sits with uh, my laptop or my iPad on my lap and joins in what is, to me, an extraordinary and new community of conversation as I'm watching something, particularly BBC Question Time or something like that. Um, so it would be interesting to get your insights on because I think that that is a very, very different uh, departure, you know, because you've got actually, you know, kind of a lot very different groupings of people having conversations, so, you know, I guess there'll be some conversation about strictly ballroom that I know nothing about Um, but meanwhile you know there are political conversations going on as well and yes there are total prats there but also you know I've kind of I have linked up and met people uh, not physically but on Twitter and I think it's a really exciting new phenomenon.
7: Twitter world. Extraordinary difference for a television producer who in the past you used to look jealously at people making feature films or producing plays because they could sit with their audience and feel what their audience were feeling when they watched the work. In television, in the past, you'd get a number that was a bit arbitrary, you always thought, and unless it was good, um, and you would, um, you'd get a few crank letters. Now you can sit and watch your programme and feel the audience talking about it by being on Twitter. And it, it does give you an extraordinarily different re- feeling about what your audience likes. It's, it's an instant um, uh, focus group research from, the, from those people that are going on to Twitter. Obviously, the, the danger is worrying about whether or not this is representative of the, of the audience.
2: We, we had a, a noble failure together a few months ago, a show called Seven Days, where we were trying to do a reality show, literally cutting it in 24 hours. and we, we were showing people online, sort of in the show, being commented upon by the viewers. Now, I, I think one of the reasons, I think it was a very kind of cutting-edge thing to try and do. As a form of entertainment, it kind of, well, I think we all acknowledged, fell somewhat short for probably a variety of reasons. But I think this whole thing about creative voice and authenticity and real ideas versus feedback is something that we're all beginning to understand. Because at the end of the day, you respond to something because it's really telling you something new about the world and it's very authentic. When, when Gypsies spiked on Channel 4 over the last month or so, we saw ma- amazing Twitter responses. But it was because what people were seeing was something completely of another world and very authentic. Whereas I think the world of constant feedback somehow isn't that?
5: Um, I think Twitter is... um, The best metaphor for for, for Twitter is Marmite. Um, People tend to tweet when they really love something or they really hate something. Twitter is not a medium for indifference. Um, Facebook status updates is a medium for indifference. I had coffee. I'm walking the dog. (sighs) I put on my pajamas. I mean, that to me is... Meaningless rubbish, but Twitter is a little different for some reason. Twitter tends to um, to, to evince quite strong emotions uh, as a community tool. I think Twitter and Facebook together are kind of extraordinary i wouldn 't for a moment suggest there 's a causal effect between Twitter, Facebook, and the fall of Mubarak in Egypt, but I will say this. I do think that they've, they create a foundation of community that enables people to feel that there are other people who empathetically understand and sympathize with their plight, and it gives them the strength and the confidence to go on and to keep fighting. And I think that would never have happened as quickly <laughs> as it did in the last month were it not for us being in a networked, community-based age of Facebook and Twitter, and I think that's extraordinary
6: has a cultural remit too because we've seen in the publishing world as we move to e-book and as um, books people think they're going to be dead and over actually Twitter and Facebook keep them alive because one of the growing um, marketing tools in publishing are the book clubs and actually Facebook and Twitter makes it possible for you to have you don't have to go in depth you don't have to be terrified and do great long theses and where you love a book you can tweet it and you can talk to a community of people and you can recommend it and I think it's one of the greatest tools for that particular side of the cultural remit to have something as readily available and as accessible and not frightening. Um, can I
4: also? Um, you'll be surprised to you know, the lady tweets, actually. Um, and hmm. we, tweet, <laughs> we tweet to a very small, very devoted audience. And actually, actually, what I, bizarrely, in fact, not bizarrely, having said that I am a figurehead brand, which I don't really mean, but I have twice as many Twitter followers as the lady magazine does and that's a problem you know the lady magazine should always be bigger than the editor you know and this is what we need to address on Twitter, twitter is an absolutely integral part of my day now a couple of days last <coughs> week i saw a tweet from women's hour that said are you is the term lady derogatory i immediately in in my personal twitter answered this we put a poll on our lady website which we then reported on Women's Hour the following day. That this, hap- this was set up within the course of one hour between the producers of Women's Hour and me at The Lady, which then turned into an in- intensely opaque and dull eight-minute mm. discussion on Women's Hour with a woman from the lesbian, bi, and transgender <laughs> workshop who accused me of being transphobic. Okay, but, so, but this all started. <laughs> this all started on Twitter... And Twitter, if, you don't, if you're not on Twitter, you are not across what's going on during the day.
3: Is it, is it derogatory? Uh, no, I, I, if yeah. only. I was called a lady. I think what Shall Twitter's it. done, actually, and this is a really, really, really good example of it, is provided old media dinosaurs with a way of engaging with people that they didn't have and actually really re-establishing the relationship um, that that would have gone away otherwise. So it's not just Gawker that people can, can comment on, or, or um, but I mean, you must have audiences, mm-hmm. and actually, you can watch the, it, the Academy Awards recently in the U.S., which was so overdone, it was beyond belief. But as much activity was going on on, on Twitter, um, and actually away from the awards as it was within the awards, and it's a it's a way of taking something very old, I think, and, and engaging think with the whole audience. I don't think it's
7: this, it's, um, countered the trend towards time shifted. Television viewing. People want to watch television as it's going out because they want to watch it at the time when all their friends
5: are watching it so that they can have a conversation. The other thing I think that Twitter is extraordinary for is depending on who you follow, um, it can be the most wonderful um, editorial filter So, if you follow the right people who do a lot of reading and thinking for a living, then you basically are given a short list of whatever articles it might be from The Atlantic or The New Yorker or The Telegraph or The Lady without, you know, it's a way of finding things that you would never otherwise find or have the time to find yourself. And so, as a marketing tool for individuals who are thinkers or in the media and are broadcasting their ability to be good editors, it's extraordinary. But
2: it is convergent sense, it's all feeding back to the phenomenon Stephen spoke about, which is people watching more TV. This is the paradox of Convergence, that so many of these applications are actually reinforcing something which has been around for, in everyone's life.
4: Community television watching. Well, j- yeah. well, I, th- Twitter, I think that
2: the, 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 the debate about the business model has always been about either or, whereas in actual fact, this is an and. And our <laughs> yeah. problem as broadcasters right now, is that we're not measuring the end. We're just we're, we're measuring the linear viewing. And, and so the big, the big commercial challenge for us is to say, I, I recently asked, I said, can you give me the data on all the really negative things people say about Channel 4 this month and all the pretty positive things? Because it's a matter of looking at those two things together and then taking that to an advertiser as an augmentation of what was, current, what was historically just selling spots in commercial breaks. Of course, there's this whole halo effect around what we do we're not measuring, and we're not, we're not sort of selling. And that's leading to a lot of value accretion out of, of, out of our medium. You know, Google makes more m- money in the UK than ITV and Channel 4 combined. But they're not investing a penny of that in, in, in writers, in actors, in studios, or anything. So there's a, there's a value accretion out of the process. But they are benefiting from the traffic... That the, that the conventional media are creating. So that's why, that's why we, we have, have to join parasites. this
5: up. Can I, make, oh, can I, I wouldn't make a, use
2: that word because uh, I, think that's like, what he said. I, I think that we're going through a else. transitional right. stage where we're working out what these things do when they act together. Yeah. And then the technology will eventually present these things, instead of in, being in separate screens, will present them in a more converged environment. And that's what's coming next.
5: Can I make a point about advertising on, to answer, answer that? Um, one of the issues is that, especially in America, maybe it's not the same here, but you know, the way that, that TV audiences are measured, the Nielsen boxes or the, you know, the TV diaries, um, archaic as they are, um, they, they don't allow um, advertisers to have a, a direct measurement of response in the same way that you get online. So online, someone either clicks on an ad or they don't. And so you have this click-through rate, which is what advertisers are basically you're buying into, and they're assuming that there's a success metric. And one of the things that has become a problem for the online world is that that has devalued and cheapened the value of advertising online, which is one of the reasons why you can't afford to produce you know, really high-quality video content and stuff like that, because the ad dollars simply aren't there. And in the TV world, it's more about an immersive experience of an exposure to a brand. And if you're exposed to a brand for long enough, then it you know, sticks in your mind and you have an affinity for it. And one of the things I think convergence also means, not just from a content perspective, but from an economic perspective, is this sort of I think the television's move onto the web elevates web advertising and the web model because people are increasingly realizing it isn't about the click-through rate and whether or not someone clicked on a banner ad. It's about the immersive experience. There there are really
2: big challenges with this because we've had a massive consolidation of media buying. So really now in the UK, all of the media is bought by two or three companies. And what what that's doing Mm -hmm. is it's it's distorting the way in which the audiences are traded and not sharing out value where, where it actually is being created. And the issue with online video is that the, the viewer is far less tolerant of interruption than they are in a conventional uh, yes. TV environment. So there are some really profound structural problems that we need to now solve. And I have always said that I think that the alleged targetability of the internet is massively overstated. Massive, you know, What is a click at the end of the well, day?
5: I personally want to no. go to clickless ads. I really do. I'd love to have ads on our site that go you go cannot this, click
1: on. We're going to yeah. go to this young man here,
8: Neil. Um, Neil Stewart, and i uh, Pulse Review TV. Um, I'm very much at the narrow casting, I think what you were saying in, uh, about direct audiences. I'm just, I am just want to mention two media moguls that haven't come up here today. The first one is Arianna Huffington and what she's done and what that tells us <laughs> from the success of uh, the valuation put on uh, Uh, the post and the reaction of her community. And the other media mogul is Peter Rigby. Now how many people in this room know who Peter Rigby is? Hands up. In about six months Peter Rigby will probably move into the FTSE 100. He's the chairman chief executive of Informa. He takes exactly the opposite view of most people on the platform. He's built up a business Niche by niche by niche. He does everything narrow. Everybody does click through. People really do pay. And the cumulative effect is likely to take him into the footsie. His stuff is absolutely run on the web, even though people still call it a conference company. He takes over Barcelona uh, with £25 million shows. Uh, I mean, Harvey would probably quite like some of that stuff. Buying every. Uh, every ad space from the airport right down to the dock and then parked yachts in front of it as well. And yet, here, we seem to be discussing the nervous breakdown of the broadcasters, the, the search for the new mass audience. My observation was always that some of our television and broad uh, uh, broadsheets had captive audiences, and the internet has taken their captives away. They're trying to devise new ways to keep that mass audience. Some of them won't stay. Some of it in the future will be narrow. It'll be narrow casting. It won't be broadband. It'll be narrow brand. It'll be niche. It'll be all the lessons that really some of the lifestyle programs began to teach us. But it's just extraordinary that those two names didn't come up. And people don't know who Peter Rigby was. Set up a company in 91. William Rees-Mogg was his chairman in the first couple of years, re-smog of the times. What was a terrifying thought. I know, it's amazing, shocking. Now,
1: rather than um, uh, people responding to that, can we go to two more observations, Sanjay here and Harvey, and then I'm afraid we'll be nearly over. Um, For a
9: start, someone needs to register Uh, the lady tweets. (laughs) Because it's just the most
3: fantastic. <laughs> you can
9: just can't. You can just see it as as a documentary about y- y- yummy mummies, or you could you could you could see it as the headline for the review of editorial intelligence, or the lady It Could even be an Agatha Christie-style "The Lady Vanishes," but the lady tweets. Fantastic novel, which um 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 clearly um would make a fantastic literary piece as well. Right. Um, here's my take. I can, I can see lots of fantastic gizmos. There are great feedback mechanisms. We use them all the time. We can, we can listen to tweets and they come back and, hey, wow, we don't have to wait for Nielsen and we don't have to wait for qualitative research companies to come back to us. But what I'm hearing from the panel fundamentally is a manifesto for Luddites. Okay? Nothing has changed. You're talking about, you know, it's like Brompton bicycles: Stay close to customers. Stay true to who you are. Don't deviate from your core values.
5: Why is that loud? There are now. Because you always because, have to stay close to your customers. That's how the business that point, works. Point,
9: which, is, which is exactly that the media values thing, this conversation could have happened a year ago, five years ago, and it could still happen in 10 years' time. And it should. Um, I'm not entirely sure what has actually changed. There are forums, certainly, where people of special interest groups can come together. Harvey's been creating those forums since the late 60s. And. You know, we talk about things like brands and not people. Don't be massive. But we all remember Tina Brown. You know, I mean, there are... And in a sense, what this is, is, is just a vindication of all the things we've always believed are important, which are fundamentally, whether you're funded commercially or not, whether you're public service or not, are... Be true to who you are and deliver some value to the people who like but you. But, but, that's well, a co-
5: but no that's one's disagreeing mean. with that, and that's not Luddite. The whole. The point is the hope. mechanisms are changing, mm-hmm. and the metrics are harder. Sure. It's harder to sustain. So how do you do exactly what you're saying? How do you stay the same? How do you get to stay true to your brand, close to your customer, you know, true to yourself, authentic, etc. in a very difficult new world? So
9: the values don't change.
5: No. Harvey, no.
10: Um, two quick comments. Um, One is I'm very concerned that the the utilisation of the social networks and Twitter and conversation pieces is leading to even more dumbing down, and I think convergence is going to prove that. Um, And I think that we need to, as broadcasters and indeed publishers, I think you have an obligation to create stimulus for new, exciting, avant-garde, and not necessarily purely, totally commercial uh, activity. And I think that's really important. I think the second point is, which I violently object to, and that is selling things on social networks. And I think it's going to be very quickly that Facebook are going to be in for a very, very large shock. That the more... um, that corporate world is utilizing Facebook and particularly Twitter to sell their products, the more that the fans are going to migrate elsewhere. Because I think they feel they've been conned. And often, you'll go to an artist website, you'll go to a website that you think is something that you've discovered. Because at the end of the day, the best sales and the best marketing have always been about discovery, not rammed down your throat. And so, consequently, I think once that's going to register home, as more and more companies are utilizing and having the Twitter person in their company and the Facebook person and so on and so forth, the more the fans are going to very, very quickly migrate, as we saw with MySpace to some extent, um, onto other sites. And then the the wonderful world of Facebook is going to be in for a very rude shock
5: I think that that's exactly right and that's my point about you can be big and you can be cool but it's very hard to be both. I think the Facebook you know is still in its sort of ascension period but when all the kids who first adopted it the early adopters find that their mothers and their grandmothers and everybody else is on it and they're being sold to they will migrate off and that happens when we haven't got enough History of the internet, but we've seen that happen enough times over the last 25 years that when something becomes too big, it loses its call cool and people move on to the next thing. The question that people are having in this industry is whether or not Facebook has become so dominant. Because when you've got 600 million people, it's not MySpace. And I think the reason, the difference is, MySpace was a purely entertaining place to go and hang out with your friends, whereas Facebook is basically your address book. And that's that as a as a utility, as a utility rather than entertainment. Facebook has now got a lock on the market. All your contacts are there, all your photographs are there, you look at pictures of your grandchildren, you correspond with your friends in Australia. When that has happened, and it's yeah. a utility in your life rather than entertainment, it's in a different position from MySpace because the switching costs are too high. One um, more.
11: I, I would like to uh, And then we'll have to wrap. I would like to talk about convergence uh, as it relates to fiction. Um, surprising, sure, that no one's <coughs> talked about Ariane Huffington. Surprising that no one's talked about a lot of things, but no one's... Uh, can you hear me? No one's actually spoke up uh, for fiction itself. Does anybody want to intermediate Steven Spielberg? Does anybody want to intermediate a novelist that has uh, something to say? I worry. Really, not one thing this entire conversation, the word media is used to describe everything apart from the very thing that comes and I think closest to describing the nature of humanity. We're subsetting our way out, in my opinion, of I started Oxygen with Jerry Labor a long time ago, and um, we tried uh, for you know as long as we could. This was in 2000 when convergence was about to happen. Uh, you know, in an hour we were going to be uh, we were going to be converged. We're still having this conversation. I don't understand why we don't talk more about uh, the. Uh, obviously, I'm prejudiced in this, but about the effect that all this business is having on storytelling and the mythology that comes from the value of being human.
1: Thank you very much. Okay. Well, you're positively the last one. This, this guy at the back, whoever it is, been just going on like this.
9: Ivo Dorney, um, as the representative of the real world here, which is the National Trust, um, uh, I, I just want to say there will be a resurgence of interest in the real world, you know, outside the media world. And I think this is going to be a really interesting phenomenon, that people who are beginning to turn things off We're going to stop twittering. We're going to
1: stop facebooking. We're going to not look at the television, and and that's the next new thing. Is the old world live? Is the new black? (laughs) Uh, People like well, here we are proving it, aren't we? Thank you all very very much. Thank you for coming at such an unearthly hour.